Welcome to this week's episode of Church Unscripted. I'm excited you're here with us. Uh, Hit the subscribe button, the notification bell, so you can know when the episodes come online every week. Um, We'd love to hear from you, so comment below, like the video. Um, I've got Pastor David and Pastor Eric with me here. Um, Eric, on Sunday, you were cutting with a blade on stage. Those of you, those that missed it, can you summarize the sermon without cutting on stage, please, this time? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a continuation of this series called The Table. And, and if, if people are new to this series and new to this unscripted series, uh, then they probably wouldn't know that um, throughout the, book, the gospel, especially the book of Luke, Jesus is uh, either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And so yeah. a major part of his ministry method was having meals with people. And so we're just kind of walking our way through the different experiences that he has at these tables and what they mean for the people that are there with him. This week, we looked at Luke chapter seven, where uh, the Bible calls this woman a sinner, doesn't even give her a name because her behavior apparently means she's not worthy of a name. Regardless, uh, she approaches this this dinner party that Jesus is at. This is where she begins to weep. The tears fall on Jesus' feet. Then she wipes Jesus' Jesus' feet with her hair uh, and then kisses his feet and then pours this this bottle of alabaster oil on his feet, which we discovered was a highly scandalous and inappropriate thing to do. But it was all the result Not of- Not just back then. If someone it, came in and did that today. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> It'd just be like, what are you doing right now? So that was highly inappropriate, highly scandalous. But we learned that she was willing to be scandalous in her gratitude and love for Jesus because she has realized just how scandalous uh, Jesus' love and forgiveness has been for her in forgiving her of all of yes. her sin, given that she uh, had a, a prostitute's lifestyle. So it was, really, it was really an encouragement to us that whenever we are around Jesus, we experience his extreme hospitality to us. Mm. Uh, and as a result, we ought to be compelled to be hospitable to the people around us as well, especially around our dinner table. Mm. One of the first thoughts you had Sunday was, what compels the broken to crash the party of the holy? So yeah. you talked a little bit about prayer and the presence of God and like, a little bit how that was intimidating the mm-hmm. holiness of God. Mm-hmm. So how do you approach prayer in entering into God's presence? That's a big wide question, but those watching, I mean, I would ask that question at the beginning of the sermon because some of us probably feel like the woman and we feel oh, yeah. less like the Pharisee. Absolutely. So hmm. uh, that's a great question. Uh, you'll have to help me with some of the t- statistics, but I think every so often they put out statistics of prayer in our culture they're not asking like, do you pray to Jesus or some other God? But they're just asked yeah. generally, like, how often do you pray? You might know the statistical number better than I do, but what is it? The average person prays how much it's, per day? It's, it's not very frequent. But yeah, that's what I was going to say. And, I was going to say, uh, we're lucky if we pray at meals. <clears throat> right. And that's a canned prayer normally. Yeah, a canned prayer. Right. But you talk about the prayer that, and the, the worship that's described in this passage, and I would say never. I mean, oh, if yeah. I'm honest. Yeah, and that's tough because I think that requires a lot of things. It's not just simply acknowledging that you're you're coming into the presence of like the creator of the universe. I mean, if that was the only variable, we'd be in prayer all day, every day, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's it's also, it feels like it's mental effort uh, to to create conversation with God, but then it's it's more than that. It's the blaring uh uh, it, it's the blaring reality of your sin exposed due to the spotlight of heaven's holiness. Yeah. And when that happens, I mean, I, what I mentioned on Sunday is that our temptation is to run from prayer because I don't like that discomfort. It just feels 
bad dealing with my sin in the presence of a holy God. And so that makes prayer really difficult for a lot of us, but... but, I I find it interesting. um, (laughs) You read through this and the woman never says anything. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if, if maybe the, the act of simply, I mean, it was an act of worship in that way. That was her just simply being at the feet of Jesus. I think a lot of times when we, Mm -hmm. when we pray, especially in our culture, we feel like it starts with dear Jesus and then whatever's on our mind, just go. And I think we miss out on maybe just being still and being silent and recognizing that holiness and then allowing that to overflow to the point where we are weeping. And then Mm -hmm. that's the place where we can just be in his presence. Cause he already knows, he knows this Mm -hmm. lady's story when she's, cause again, he didn't jump up and move. Like if somebody's crying on my feet, I'm going to like, you know, move. Yeah. Right. And if someone's so, touching your feet, you're going to well, yeah, let's be honest. Like, yeah, it's, like, it's just, <laughs> that's no good. But so I think that's, that's something important to recognize as we enter into prayer is that like he already knows and simply by us just coming and sitting in his holiness and then allowing that, that to just wash over us to the point where we are actually repentant in our hearts to the point of tears. Mm-hmm. That's, it's interesting that's you say that because you contrast her method of prayer right? Yeah. Which didn't have any words right. compared and contrasted to the criticism that Jesus gives uh, the Pharisees when they stand on the corner yeah. of the streets praying out loud with all these big theological words. Right. And it's, it's, it, they're not talking to God at all. They're trying right. to impress the people walking by. Yeah. And so I think you're onto something that oftentimes the best prayers that we pray um, have zero words connected mm. to them. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, and there, there's a difference between this woman. I don't think she was doing anything for those around her. In fact, it made her undignified. Like she's like laying <laughs> there weeping on Jesus's yeah. feet, like mm-hmm. wiping his feet with her hair. Imagine the dirt that was caught in her hair and like how it looked. I mean, she was looking more like a prostitute than a prostitute at that point. And Jesus is there. And the fact is she's so broken. Imagine going to Jesus and looking that way. Do you know what I'm saying? We yeah, go in our, yeah. we try to dress up our brokenness when we go to God sometimes. And I yeah. think she didn't do any of that. She did the opposite. She was She's already, like, this is who I am. Yeah. Right. You know? And so I think there was, a, there was a lot there. Some of us, you know, I already said this, but some of us listening uh, to Sunday sermon or even today, we sometimes feel like that woman. Um, can we, can we read a couple of the verses? Cause I really yeah. want to give some context. Yeah. Um, so basically the Pharisees, they're like the, uh, really religious dudes are sitting there with Jesus and this woman of the city who was a sinner. I love how it says woman of the city, <laughs> this prostitute, streetwalker. You know what? People say all kinds of different things. And she comes in, she learned that Jesus was there. So she comes in with this alabaster flask of ointment. I, I've heard before, and I, I don't know, Eric, in your study, but basically it was worth a lot of money. Tons. Right? Tons yeah, of money, right? That was right? fortune. Yep. And so... Um, she, she comes there, she weeps at his feet, begins to wet his feet with her tears and then wipe them with the hair of her head and kiss the feet and then anointed them with ointment. She, one, was sacrificial financially in some way. She, two, had the emotional response, but also was the wherewithal to follow through on what she was planning on doing. And she went into a very uncomfortable environment. I can't imagine a place that a prostitute would want to go, like, 
like a Pharisee's house. Like literally that's the place you don't want to go. So if there's something that's like, that's like, uh, you know, contemporary, like thinking like the worst sinner that we could imagine in Christian culture coming into the church and saying, I'm going to be there and I'm going to stand on the stage. It's like, uh, no, that's, that would be incredibly awkward. Spotlight's going to be on you. So all of that said, how does this story of a woman that just focuses on Jesus resonate with both of you? I mean, I, I take it as an incredible invitation uh, to find freedom and to find hope, mm. even though you have to have the initiation of walking into an uncomfortable situation. Yeah. I think that's the barrier. I don't, I don't know if people reject Jesus as much as they reject the difficulty of coming, of coming to grips yeah. with the reality that they're broken. Mm. And I don't know, that's, I, think, I think it's an incredible opportunity that once you realize what Jesus did for the woman, you're like, man, I'll, I'll sign up for that too yeah. if you have the guts to walk into right. uh, the uh, proverbial Pharisee's house and actually meet Jesus there yeah. uh, when all of your guilt and sin and shame is just yeah. exposed before you. Yeah, I think it's a, it's an, it's a challenge to be vulnerable um, with our worship. I know uh, we were just having a conversation today just about how... Um, we can we can kind of come into church and just kind of like just try to fit in and be be like just a normal person who doesn't stand out but i think there's something powerful that happens when we when we recognize what we are saved from and we have that freedom it changes the way that we worship and so for me um i think this this passage i've always loved this passage cuz i think it's it's the most one of the most profound displays of worship that I see through scripture. And it's an encouragement again, for me to be vulnerable and, and accept uh, my, like my mess and take it to Jesus and just mm -hmm. be able to worship in that place. So I, I mean, yeah. What about you? Well, I, I think one of the things I, I think about is I think I'm going to sit in the back from now on when Eric's preaching and just say amen a lot because that's what I would do to be out of the norm. Because I'm like, amen, preach it, brother, preach it, preach it. Because I, I think- How when did it, you get a Southern accent? Yeah, I don't no, know. I have no idea. <laughs> connection there, but. Ask my wife. I've got all kinds of accents. They're probably all like not made for TV. I'll just put it that way. So, oh, um, But uh, I, I think one of the things I see here that profoundly impacts me is that Sometimes we need to be a, more, a lot more like her in our worship. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying the overly emotional or anything like that, but it's just more of a profoundly focused on the presence of Jesus rather than anything else. Um, and I do think we come into church sometimes and we get fixated on something. Um, I remember pretty distinctly that as a pastor, like it's like you sit up front and people watch you as you worship and it's like intimidating. The light's on you, Eric. Everyone's watching, watching you worship or you as a worship pastor, they're watching you, what you do. And, and sometimes I just, I wanna flee from that thought even being in my mind mm -hmm. so that I can just be in the presence of Jesus in a mm -hmm. church service or something like that. Um, and I think there's a lot of people that have that for different reasons. It's not just the pastor. It's not just, and maybe it is a church leader or something like that. And the one thing I would say is we need to focus on more being like the woman in her worship and less like the Pharisees in their uh, voyeurism, like watching her worship. Mm -hmm. I'm sure she was getting dirty looks, right? But she didn't care. She yeah. was focused on Jesus. And I think sometimes we gotta, mm. we gotta worry, worry less about the Pharisees in our midst and more about what Jesus says and focus on him. Mm -hmm. So 
I don't know. That was me being preachy again. So <laughs> the middle, the middle part of the sermon yeah. um, has one of the, I think, the most profound passages that is hard to model. Um, in verse 41 of, of Luke chapter seven, it says a certain money lender had two debtors owed one 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Which of them would love him more? Mm. And I think that was profound. You said, if Jesus forgives you a lot, you'll love Jesus a lot. Can you guys kind of unpack that a little bit more, that thought? Because some that may be watching or watch Sunday, maybe they don't know what it's like to be forgiven a lot, or they're just not aware of what they've been forgiven for. I, I, that's a really good question. I think it's actually a little bit of a trick question, not your question, but this actual passage. It is a trick be, question. Because yeah. when, whenever you compare your sin debt to somebody else's sin debt, the only reference that you have is is perception, right? Mm-hmm. So if if you have committed a sin that is significantly more grievous than the sins I've committed, I might know intellectually that that's a really big deal, right? But I'm now I don't feel the weight of the sin that you feel right now. Yeah. The only weight that I feel is the weight of my own sin. So I think I think what he's not what he's trying to say is. It doesn't matter how much sin you've committed compared to how much sin I've committed. Regardless, you ought to feel the significant weight of sin no matter what the sin is. Hmm. And so I think the, the, the perception is, I think what he's not trying to say is if you have a little bit of sin, you don't really need to love me a whole lot. I think what he's saying is even if you have a little bit of sin, it's a whole lot of debt that you have to pay. Yeah. And so it's a perception of of. Do I recognize the severity of sin and thus what Jesus is actually doing for me, regardless of what actual sins I've committed? Did I confuse you? No, 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 no. What I was thinking as you said that, it's basically our awareness of the deep debt that we have is going to help us understand and love Jesus more. So like, like, I think of it like going to seminary. When you start studying the Bible in seminary, you realize how much you don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. And so when you start realizing how much you don't know, you start realizing how big God is right. and how amazing God is. And then you're like, oh man, yeah. you just get in awe of his holiness. Well, it's the mm-hmm. same way with sin is when we start realizing how great our debt of sin is, mm-hmm. then we start realizing how much we love him and need to love him and yeah. care to love him. Mm-hmm. And, and we realize like our gratitude and our thanksgiving for that raises and everything raises essentially in our relationship with God. So that, I mean, is that what you're yeah, saying? That, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Because if, if, if that's the actual interpretation of the passage, then you could easily come to the conclusion of, well, if, if I really want to love Jesus more, I've got to commit some really bad sins, right? Yeah. And if I'm not willing to do that, apparently I can't love Jesus. That so much. now we're going to go sin. <laughs> no, right. exactly. it's, like, yeah. it's like, wait a second. So yeah. The reality is, is whatever sin I've committed ought to be enough of a sin to feel the weight of that debt, which the debt of course is life and death. Mm. doesn't matter what sin I've committed. The same result is true. And that is life and death. Yeah. And so I should feel that weight regardless of the sin, just as if it was uh, a severe, grievous sin or, or something less significant. Mm. That makes sense. I mean, yeah, I think I think I've I've always I've always struggled with that idea because I grew up in a Christian home, Christian school, Christian college. I was I was saved when I was six, you know, and so the whole weight of sin thing, and I even struggle that with that as a parent now. I'm like, my kids don't actually understand the weight of sin in the full scope. And I feel like the older I get, the more I understand the weight of that. And it draws me into a deeper worship because I'm like, oh my goodness, like what he saved me from 
is so much more than I ever recognized. Mm -hmm. And I learn that every mm -hmm. day, it seems like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. I think it's kind of a trick question, but I think in our, in our English American world, we can kind of like, when I, when I first read that, I'm like, oh, well, I can't love him a lot because I don't feel like my story is like as extreme as somebody else's. But then to have that recognition of like, no, the debt of sin is the same, regardless of what the actual act well, is. And I think, I think what we're praying for in ourselves and others is probably a sensitivity to sin because the sensitivity is direct relationship with the love we'll have for God. Yeah. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? So, so we start realizing like, yes, um, Jesus said, if you've thought about a woman in lust, you've committed adultery, right? Mm -hmm. Then you're just like the person who committed an act right. that, that we would consider very simple. And so like, I think there's a parallel there in, in, in a lot of ways. Jesus kind of knocked down norms. And when he yeah. said this, I'm sure the Pharisees would have been like, uh, who's he talking about? He's talking about us. He's really actually, I think, kind of spitting in their eye in a sense. He's like, you guys think you haven't, don't have a big debt, so you don't love me that much. Well, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, if you really want to compare apples to apples between the sin of the woman compared to the sin of the Pharisee, it's very paradoxical, isn't it? Because yeah. in Jesus, or I'm sorry, in their mind, prostitution is significantly greater of a sin than virtually the lack of sin in the Pharisee's life. But in Jesus' mind, it's the act of prostitution that she's now um, remorseful for is significantly less of a sin, eternity speaking, than the, than the lack of belief in the Pharisees. Yeah. So if you want to talk about the weight of sin, yeah. my goodness, it doesn't matter what she's done, she's going to be saved while he, <clears throat> the Pharisee, um, will not be because he, he refuses to believe in Jesus. So, I mean, there, it's, it's almost like a, a paradox, a flip that Jesus is making on them. As, as, as you're reading the passage on Sunday and as I've been reading this, I thought to myself, this would have been a great dinner party. It would have been like an episode of The Office or something. Yeah. Like, here's the Pharisee and there's the prostitute. And there's like all these people and like all the yeah, awkward right. looks and expressions yeah. of what's going on, you know? Uh -huh. so, so you talked about towards, towards the end of your sermon, he said, when you crash Jesus's party with gratitude, you show Jesus's hospitality, like you're showing hospitality to others. So... How does Jesus' Jesus's emphasis on meals and eating with people change your understanding of faith and discipleship? Or how should it change our understanding of faith and discipleship? Because I know like I grew up in a church where we thought discipleship was only Bible study, sitting in a classroom, and that's what it was. Mm. And that was discipleship because Bible study and discipleship are the same thing. But in reality, discipleship is really almost everything we do, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, th I think there's a significant distinction between learning things about faith and about God compared to developing your relationship with him. So you can sit in a Bible study, you can sit in church and you can learn things about God. You can even be inspired. Yeah. But I think, I think that you, you grow, all things grow through difficulty. Mm -hmm. Nothing grows when things are easy. And so discipleship happens when you walk through difficulties of life and faith becomes the guiding light that leads you towards um, the maturity on the other side. Mm. And so that usually happens the best in a setting of relationships. Mm. So the, the table around a meal really becomes the perfect environment to walk people through crises in their life, um, guiding them by faith so that on the other side, they can find that maturity. Um, I don't, that, that's why I don't think you can really grow significantly or fully or completely as a follower of Jesus outside of 
Christ-centered relationships. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you can have Christ-centered relationships unless you sit down and actually have meals with people. (laughs) Um, Coffee shops, I guess, are a nice substitute, but... Um, that, that seems right. and to be there, great. There's a messiness to it. Because yeah, if yeah. we apply that just to this passage at the end of Luke chapter seven, the Pharisee got in himself in a messy situation, yeah. to say it, put it mildly. Um, and I think sometimes we're maybe afraid of the mess. And so we run from that kind of discipleship and we think, well, I can put this in this little box. We compartmentalize church to Sunday mornings or we compartmentalize church to a Bible study or something like that. When really we are the church, and we're always the church. And so that moment that's messy, you're still the church and yeah. you're empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak into other people's lives yeah. at the table yeah. mm-hmm. when maybe you don't see it or maybe how you react to your kids. I mean, I, I'm going to tell the story probably in my, my sermon later in the series. I'm, I'm preaching one time and I'm thinking about how many times my personal life has been impacted by meals. Mm-hmm. And I've got kind of a list that I've slowly compiled. Mm-hmm. Um, meals going back to when my dad sat down at a table, going back to when my mom sat down at a table at a different time, when I've sat down at a table, things that I remember from interactions with other believers at a table and interactions I had with other people that were not believers at a table and the impact that had in my life. And I think if we completely eliminate all meals, let's just say we do that. We eliminate the word hospitality from our vocabulary how are we any different than anyone that's not a Christian? It's a fair point. I mean- yeah, you gotta talk more about that though. Oh, uh, we'll, we'll yeah. unpack that a little bit. I got a, a question. Grenade you just I know, I just, threw out, I just threw that out there, but let's, let's move further and we'll go back to that. Okay, all right. Cause I got, I got an idea and a, a direction I, I wanna talk about, but um, you talked about three take at homes, very easy. I, basically I was like, your table is a place of thanks, your table is a place of generosity, and your table is a place of hospitality. So let's think about this atmosphere of gratitude and thankfulness. Um, how do we create that opportunity at our table? Like what does that look like to be a grateful people and a thankful people? You know, I think it starts when, when you realize that if, if, you are, if you're the owner of that table, it's in your house. It's a freeing feeling when you finally realize, you know, I get to control what happens at this table. That's my table. Mm -hmm. And so if that's my table, I have the authority to determine what we talk about, what we don't talk about. And so if that's your table, just say, you know, this is what we're going to do. In the 45 minutes that we're sitting down at this table, we're going to talk about the things we're thankful for. We're not going to talk about how we hate our neighbors. We're going to talk about the things that God has done for us. And it's a freeing feeling realizing you have the ability to determine what you talk about at your table. You mean we're not going to complain about how we're not getting to watch TV and we're not getting to go outside or we're not getting Uh, to do this. If your kids are under 13, that's inevitable. Oh, okay. okay. You're just going to have to do I'm like, oh. (laughs) You know, know, something something we started doing was we have these little cards. There's like questions we can ask. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it gets a little awkward with the kids, but it's like, oh, okay. You know, and sometimes the answers are just hilarious because the age of the kids. But doing that even when other people are there has been very eye-opening to like, you can have a very deep, meaningful conversation with other people and get to know them a little bit better just from asking simple questions. So there's there's yeah. a few things. I probably can leave some stuff in the comments, but there's some things you can just buy for questions at your table. If you're, if you're wondering what to ask even at your own table with yeah. your own family, yeah. this is an opportunity. Yeah. Um, 
we've almost eliminated meals out of convenience. You ever notice that yeah. we have a microwave, we can microwave things quick. If we don't have to cook fast anymore, food, fast right. food. That's right. So what we've done is the, the, the convenience of our world, I'm not going to say the world, but the convenience of the world has made it very hard to maintain a, a place of thanks and hospitality and gratitude because you're just running to one thing to the next. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I think I'm speaking to myself parenting wise, but when you have a few kids, it becomes really hard. When you have maybe a career that you're really busy doing stuff, or maybe even you're a student, you know, I remember in college, it was like I had night classes. So what am I going to do before the night class? I'm going to go run and get fast food, but I'm not eating with anybody. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not in community together. Mm-hmm. So David, what, what do you- Yeah, one of the things that, one of the things that I love to do, and I do it randomly uh, because I don't want it to become uh, something that we grow numb to around our table. But um, just just last week we were sitting there and the kids were eating their food, shockingly, and- uh, I just, Shockingly, yeah, well, you know that. how kids are. Like, they like chicken nuggets today, but tomorrow they don't. You know, it's just, you know. That's, but, I thought that was only my house. <laughs> but we were sitting there, and, and we, hadn't, we hadn't honestly been around our table in, in what seemed like forever. It was probably a week or so. We just had a busy week. So we're eating, and I just said, hey, uh, Jada, what is one thing that you love about mommy? And she's like, uh... I don't know. And then, you know, the, uh, the another kid jumps in. They're like, well, I really love this about mommy. And, I, and then they start just going around. And then I'm like, okay. So, Kinsey, what do you love about Jada? And we would just we just went around and I just picked different people. And I skipped myself because that like you don't want to fish the couple. Yeah, what do y'all love about yeah, me? Yeah, what do you love about me? Make the lo- and, list. And long. one of my daughters was like, dad, we didn't say what we love about <laughs> you. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, if you want to, you can. But in that moment, like... You mean this wasn't Father's Day they did this? Yeah, (laughs) right. But I think it's, uh, like, for kids, it's super simple. And I think as adults, we kind of, like, brush over that because it seems like a a juvenile conversation. But, like, just talking about, like, when they're like, Daddy, what do you love about Mommy? And I'm like, wow. Mm -hmm. Like, that's that's a deep question that you're asking me. I asked you and I wasn't even ready for a response. And then it begins to fill gratitude at your table. And so I think, like, I, I think we get so scared of having conversations, but simple questions, like you were saying, can just instantly just. Yeah. That wasn't even a hard question. All, no, really. and it's it should super be, at least. simple. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think, like, for us, like, we've seen that really kind of impact even the way that we are relating to each other because. All day, I'm, you know, I could be hearing that there's fighting or, you know, pushing and shoving and all that. But then, like, for a moment, we're sitting at a table and we're unified around this one thing. We're going to be thankful for the people that are sitting around this table. And then the night is different because the gratitude has shifted the atmosphere of... So this makes me want to protect that at all costs. So maybe, do you guys have any suggestions on how to protect that? Because I feel like that right there is a huge description of like every day of my life. Like there's like something that happens. Mm -hmm. I come home, I'm trying to help my kids, but I'm also like, okay, company's coming over maybe or something's happening. And it's kind of chaos until you get that gratitude moment, whatever it looks like. Um, sometimes for my kids, it's as simple as sitting down and reading a book. And then all of a sudden I have all four of them there and I'm like, my 10 year old can read like, come yeah, on, right. like you yeah. can read, like yeah. I'm reading a, a young kid's book, but I, how do we protect 
the table in our house. And I don't mean protect it from others coming in, but protect the sanctity Mm. of that moment that you just described, that you've described, like of that time with other people, including our own family. I think it's got to start with intentionality. And so mm. we, have, we have so much scientific data to back up the fact that great intentions really mean nothing. Uh, great intentions, though, that turn into uh, scheduling changes or behavior modifications uh, really actually have lasting impact. And I think you know the number better than I do. I think it's how many days before... Uh, a behavior turns into a habit. I think 63. 63 days. So literally, if if you you and your family talk and say, hey, for, literally for the next two months straight, here's what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to sit at the table and it's going to start at six o'clock or, you know, whatever that is. I think we give up at have, like day 21 yeah, because, because it used to be said that. Yeah. But if you can push through that first two months, then all of a sudden the behavior becomes far more easier. And then it becomes part of the pattern and culture of the home. So um, it's got to start with intentionality, but intentionality is worthless without behavior. Yeah. We're, we're, we're wrestling with this as a family now because we have kids that are starting to get involved in things and yeah. all this stuff. Whoa. And so, sports. I know. <laughs> sports. All, all sorts of right. stuff. But um, one, of the, one of the things that we're wrestling with is, okay, so if we are protecting the table time for our family, and then we also want to have table time with other people, and we want to have table time with our... Uh, I'm, already, I'm already getting anxious listening to this. But, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like, okay, so how do we... If we want to protect this for our family, say we did 63 days of of straight just family at the table learning how to be filled with gratitude like i don't i don't know well, like you, you know can't what i just mean like skip sports you can't do well, that I you know, can't but, tell yeah. so i think it's a matter of of like scheduling gymnastics and so one of the things that uh, heather and i do is when we have our dates on friday since both of us have our day off on friday um, what we like to do is go to the gym we get breakfast then we bring our computers with us and sometimes what we do is we just look at the calendar ahead and say okay we have this couple coming over this day we've got this event that evening and so okay I, we're, I we're thought you were saying you were scheduling gymnastics for yourself yeah, and I was I envisioning am, yeah. you doing cartwheels I was like what I can do what all that stuff man it's, it's so fun. you're sitting down together yes. though that's exactly. back to that that's right, that's right. So, <laughs> no handspring I was like what I would break something for sure but it, so if you if, if you're married get you and your spouse yeah. on the same page. That way you can look into the next two months yeah. and say, okay, that next Wednesday, we're not going to have dinner together because there's baseball and then there's gymnastics and there's mm -hmm. dance and stuff. But that Thursday, there's nothing scheduled. We're going to have dinner there. So I think it's a matter of, of looking ahead at the schedule and being mm -hmm. intentional together yeah. and implementing that plan. Yeah. But one, one of the things that I want to ask you, I've been wanting to ask this for like the last 15 minutes, okay? John's just... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've got all the questions. <laughs> that was perfect. That was perfect. Um, so going back to the woman in Luke chapter seven. Yeah. What we're trying to say is that the table experience ought to have some kind of a lasting impact on the person's life. Mm. And so when Jesus yes. ends the story, he says, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace, right? Mm. And I described a little bit about what that meant. Like you, she can go in peace and not worry about being shunned and ostracized and cast out by the community or abandoned or anything like that mm -hmm. because she is now reconciled with God. Yeah. But I'm beginning, I want, the question I want to ask you is, what did her life look like after that experience? Did she go back to being a prostitute? Did she give it up? Did she go to school again and get a different degree? Where did she live? Did she have a home? Mm. Did she get a different job? So imagine with me, what did her life look like after her experience with Jesus? 
Well, I mean, do you want me to quote James or Paul? Both. Because James says faith without works is dead. So her works had to change because her faith changed. She was saved by her faith. Um, Paul would say, you know, we don't earn our salvation is kind of his perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, she didn't earn her salvation. She had faith and that's yeah. what saved her. So, yeah, right. um, so in some ways, I when we are, either. when we are touched by Jesus yeah. and our, we have faith in Jesus and we're saved by that faith, she's going in shalom. She's going in peace. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine a world where she's the same in any way. Um, I can imagine a world where maybe she was a little bit more like Jesus for a while, not knowing where to live. Mm. People still rejecting her say, oh, I thought you were a prostitute on the corner. She's yeah. like, no, I'm not that anymore. Old client soliciting her. Yeah, she exactly. Says, nope, not no, that I'm not, I'm not that anymore. Yeah. I could imagine verbal and emotional, maybe even physical abuse as a result of her faith in yeah. Jesus because rejecting what path she was on, yeah. was a co- there was a cost. Yeah. She had more of a cost than the Pharisees had. If the Pharisees quit being a Pharisee and followed Jesus, all they were gonna get is verbal ridicule from other Pharisees. Right. The reality is she had, she had so many different sinners, you might say, yeah. that were counting on her or wanted her to do things that were inappropriate mm-hmm. or immoral and she would have gotten more pushback from that, I think. Yeah. Think she needed to get a new set of friends? Potentially. Yeah. I mean, I, there, there's an analogy. I read a book once. It was called The Gutter. And the guy was talking about going back to his gutter. So what he was saved out of, eventually he became a ambassador or missionary too. But he also talked about the healing redemption that takes time. Mm. And so I don't think Jesus, um, especially if you're new in faith, like don't think that you're going to have the... Um, I don't even know what the word is, like the the strength, the courage or whatever to go back into that environment and not fall victim to the same addictions or whatever you were in. You have to take your time and, and in guidance through the Holy Spirit, decide when it's time to go back and reach yeah. people that are struggling with those same things. Mm. Um, you know, if you're struggling with an addiction, you don't go and try to help someone else with their addiction right away. You have to maintain a, a period of sobriety, right? And so that's that's kind of the point here, I think. Hmm. In essence, she's she's going out of this yeah. and she's shown her faith. I mean, yeah. I said earlier, undignified. She was undignified yeah. in front of the Pharisees. They're clearly not going to help her. They're not inviting her home, you know, to have a have a place to live or stay. But instead, Jesus here is saying, go. And he, he's not even giving her anything except for her, her salvation. Yeah. That's, that's all Jesus That's kind of where I'm like, yeah. man, I wish the story didn't end there because I would have loved to have seen what Jesus and perhaps his disciples at the point tried to do for the woman so yeah. that she didn't try to live this brand new life all by herself. I'm yeah. wondering if maybe he, he kind of called one of his disciples beside and said, hey, when I'm done talking to her, would you go kind of spend some time with her and mm. maybe give her some resources or connect her to some other people mm. who would be generous and yeah. hospitable to her? So I don't know. I'm just kind of wondering, what does that person's life look like after mm. she has this experience with Jesus? I, I kind of, I as you were asking that, I kind of thought of Paul's experience, right? Like he went from murdering Christians to having an, an encounter with God and then trying to, build the kingdom of heaven like that is like huge and he faced so much opposition when he was trying Mm -hmm. to get his ministry started um so i almost feel like for her like that that's almost a a parallel experience like to go from being a prostitute to now following jesus and being rid of that like i'm sure she experienced all those things that john was saying and probably had to had a hard time finding friends because 
when you go to, hey, let's, you know, let's be friends. You're like, wait, aren't you the one that was on the, no, it's like, I'm not. No, no good Jew would hang out with her. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that was, yep. that would be the relationship yeah. barrier. She might have moved towns or cities well, or something. And one of the things I thought about here too is Jesus gave her her dignity back. And I think that's kind of important is like when we invite someone to our table that maybe has been rejected mm-hmm. by other people, we're giving them their dignity back. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're not providing salvation. I mean, we have an opportunity to present salvation to them and see what the Holy Spirit does. But I think in some ways um, we have the same opportunity Jesus does here in giving her dignity back um, in inviting someone in that maybe doesn't fit in and maybe just is trying to figure out their faith or maybe they don't have faith. Yeah. So, I mean, there's still that there. So Eric... That is difficult, but I always remember in scripture, it's always like just enough information is given for us to know for life and godliness or, mm. you know, salvation. And so there's a lot of things I, after I read this, I go, what happened to her? What happened to this person? What happened? Mm. I mean, we hear about people like Zacchaeus and then we never hear about him again. Right. right? And it was like, am I going to see him in heaven kind of when I that, pass away? Kind of you know, you that awe and wonder kind of mm-hmm. mentality of just like, right. I wonder what happened and like, look at what he's saved them from. And it begins to encourage like awe and wonder in your own story of like, I wonder what's coming. Like, Well, in, in, in a huge part of that, even that I keep thinking of is that it's because we get lost in the human characters, but the reality is the main character is God. And in this case, Jesus as God and as, as the son. And so um, sometimes we miss that part of it mm-hmm. because we're focused on, okay, what happened to so-and-so? And right. we hope we hope good things for him, but she probably had a rough life after that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, that's what I'm saying. It's but like, she probably felt more free than she ever had before. Yeah, so wait. That continued there was no to burden. motivate her to... And so whenever she felt perhaps called back or enticed back into that lifestyle, maybe just for a roof over her head mm-hmm. or perhaps some security or companionship, she remembered the freedom that Jesus set her free yeah. from, uh, the freedom Jesus set her free into. Yeah. Um, and that probably continued to motivate her, which I hope is is something. I think people wonder, you know, what is my life going to be like after I, uh, I give my life to Jesus? I mean, am I going to find a new circle of friends? Because if I'm with them, they're going to pull me right back mm-hmm. into that same lifestyle. Yeah. How am I going to entertain myself? If I'm set free from an addiction to pornography, how am I going to entertain mm-hmm. myself? If I no longer have this this anger issue, mm-hmm. then how am I going to deal with these emotions inside me? So I think people are wondering all the time, what does my life look like after Jesus sets me free? And I think there's some fear associated with that because mm-hmm. it's the fear of the unknown. Yeah. And I think if maybe what the story is teaching us to do is to simply trust the one who set us free. Uh, if he can set us free from our guilt and shame, he can set us free into a life that yeah. he knows will be good for us. So mm. hopefully that's an encouragement. I got, I got one closing thought and idea. It's back to the grenade I threw in here okay. Okay, about hospitality. <laughs> yeah. So you talked about making your table a practice in hospitality, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So one of the things I've heard, especially when I've studied Acts, is that, that hospitality was actually a different word than inviting, say, your family over, right? Okay. Or your friends. It was Hospitality was actually reserved for those you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, like specifically for strangers or basically this was what set early Christians apart. They would invite people in that they didn't know well. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it was inviting people in that were off the street, you know, because they're coming to town, you know, like people would go from different villages and then they would stay with someone rather than there was no inn really, mm-hmm. or there was limited space. So how do you think that shatters the modern day understanding of hospitality? Cause hospitality is just inviting someone over, right? Mm-hmm. And honestly, we could invite the same 
couple families over for the rest of our lives. And I think that would be very comfortable. But what does it look like to do something different? Because doesn't the world do the same thing? Wow. Yeah, I think it does. And I think to some degree, even if the people you have over are family and friends, you still need to be hospitable to them. Yes. Right? Oh, I don't but disagree. But at the same yeah. time, I think the, the ministry purpose of hospitality in the New Testament is um, use your table as the platform for evangelism. Yes. Um, the platform mm. for influence. And so, hmm. um, and so I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go to Walmart and just walk around to some random person and say, hey, do you want to come over to my house? That's I'm going to do that just to spite you, just to figure it out. Like, oh, and then I invite <laughs> yeah. him over and I'm now like, I'm gonna, oh, now I know you don't do that. You <laughs> yeah, hey, gonna, hey, can I invite you over to my pastor's house? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I Thanks say pastor, they won't show yeah. up, yeah. right? Yeah. Is that what it is? I think what it is talking about though is when, when you have a new neighbor down the street, you don't know them but you become perhaps mm. one of their first influences in this city mm. yes. and you become maybe one of their first friends. And mm. so you're hoping that the hospitality to strangers turns into a friendship mm. that has influence associated with it. But just to walk around and just random strangers say, come over to my house. I mean, that might be not just inappropriate, but dangerous. And right? that's, so, not, that's not necessarily yeah. what, what I think the passage yeah. is saying, but in some ways she was that stranger. I mean, she think was. about it. Like yeah. she was not a friend of the Pharisees. Let's put it that way. You know, I don't know that she knew Jesus before that moment. We don't hear about her at other spots, right? We're, that's why we're asking what happened she, to her. She also wasn't invited. She, wasn't. she also wasn't invited. So are we like, there's a sense of hospitality there where it was somebody else's house and, and Jesus just turned that table into his own table in a way. Mm-hmm. So, so I, have, I, have, I had an interesting experience as a kid. David, I'll, I'll have you answer this a little bit more before I go into this because I'll just close. I got a little story. What am I answering? What are you answering? Like hospitality, the modern day oh, oh, hospitality versus I now. I didn't yeah. know if you had You're like, question. wait a second. I don't have another question. No, just, just the idea of, you know, strangers versus people you know. I think everyone's really a stranger. In essence, we're always moving closer to knowing hmm. someone better in some ways. Yeah. So you yeah. can argue that. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I think of when you, when you asked that, I think of, uh, I read a book uh, not too long ago and I can't remember which one. So I'll, You've read just I'll so find many. it. I'll find it. Oh, so Lost, many. Yeah, Lost so many. Oh, goodness. Um, but the the guy was talking about how him and his family really wanted to be hospitable. And so they committed to having 100 different families in their house in the course of a year. So like that's that's a lot of that's a lot of people and a lot of days out of the year. Like that's a third of the year. Almost. I want to read this book. This is and that's and they twice a week. Yeah, and they would take. It's <laughs> like what? Oh my See, goodness. They would. So what <laughs> they would do then? What they would do then is they would have dinner with whoever they had dinner with, and then they would take a picture together with a Polaroid, and then they would hang it on the wall. And so as they would go through the year, then as they would invite people in, they'd say like, "Oh, what's the pictures on the wall?" And they say, "Well, we're committed to." like relationships with people and hospitality and like, we want to get to know you. And so it kind of built a story of hospitality for their family. Imagine if, if five families at Brookside committed to that. Dude, even half That's of so that. Much even half of that. That's so That's much once ministry. a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know? much ministry. And so like, I, I think like, I mean, obviously like we're in, our family is not in a space where we can do twice a week, but it is a challenging thought to think about like, how are we using our, the things that, like you were, you were talking about how God has given us 
tables and he's given us places and and you know my table has 10 chairs around it and yeah my family fills up almost all of them <laughs> but like how can we create more space and think about like who are the people that need to be in those seats mm-hmm. and and begin to just be open to maybe letting the maybe letting the schedule go a little bit and and getting ahead of it and saying the hospitality is going to dictate my calendar. I'm not going to let these other things dictate that the other way around. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense, David. I think but, that's very practical. So hear the story. So this story is basically from my childhood. So my parents would do things like invite people over after my mom was mm-hmm. already cooking dinner, which as a child, I was like, why are there more people here? And I know <laughs> I'm an extrovert, but it was like a little overwhelming when I'm like random people are showing up to our house. Um, I loved it after a while. And that's where I got my sense of hospitality. Like yep. just if someone shows up at the house, we're going to feed them. Yep. Um, my dad used to say at the table, and I might've told this story before, but he used to say FHB. And I thought he was cursing at first. Okay. <laughs> but he was really just saying family hold back because my mom had made enough food for the four of us. And there was say eight at the table. So when you have four chicken breasts, you got to figure something out, you know, or whatever it might be. And, you know, as a child, it helped me realize that hospitality should not be constrained by resources. It should it should only be constrained by by the obedience in our hearts towards God's call to that um, of hospitality. Um, no, we never went without food, nothing like that. It was just always, this is last minute. Okay, we're going to do this. Um, to the point where I got to the college age and my parents decided, hey, we'll hold the college group at our house rather at the, mm-hmm. than at the church. And um, at first it was like really easy because there was like maybe 10 or 15 of us and like we could sit in one of our rooms and be whatever. And my parents had a smaller house, about 1,900 square feet, but it was four bedrooms. So there really wasn't a lot of like living space per se. Um, But our peak was up to 85 people. So we set out chairs in our backyard and in our front yard put the windows open and played worship music. Basically there's a few people playing inside. So it was like our neighbors probably hated us. We're in a small neighborhood, but I just remember seeing that as a picture of hospitality. And my parents at about like 11 or 12, you know, on a Friday night would say, Hey, you guys need to go somewhere else. So we'd go to Denny's till four in the morning. Um, but, but the reality is when I look at that, I look at that as a story of opening up your home, even though it was very uncomfortable and we had to make friends with our neighbors so that we could do that. Like we didn't want everyone parking in our cul-de-sac and taking all the spots so our neighbors can park in front of their houses or stuff like that. We had to prepare and yeah. tell people, okay, you need to park over here. You need to do this. Telling our neighbors, Hey, are you guys okay with this? Like if one of our neighbors wasn't okay with something, like I think my parents a couple of times were like, hey, we can't do this this time mm-hmm. or do that because so-and-so is doing this. And I think I think showing that level of hospitality, even in your relationships with your neighbors is very important. Yeah. So that's all I was going to share. It's a great story. Really. So FHB, there it's not go. a curse word. <laughs> all right. So thank you so much for watching Church Unscripted with us this week. Um, we're really excited to be learning about the table. Um, we hope that this is both stimulating, inspiring, and encouraging um, as we find ways to be more grateful, more thankful, um, have generosity, and also have a sense of hospitality. Um, so thank you for joining us. Um, again, hit the subscribe button, the notification bell, hit the like button, comment below. Um, I will probably this week, definitely, actually I will, is put um, maybe some links to some of those comment cards and things that are question cards that you can use at your table. Um, So thank you very much for joining us.